0: All right, hopefully this time we got it. I think we're recording. I think so. I think one of yeah. us is
1: recording. I that's me. I
0: can't can't Here, tell. It could be either way.
1: Right. So last time we talked about um we talked about an intro. Didn't we talk about an intro last time? We
0: did. I did a bit of research on what I was talking about because I thought I had maybe dreamed it about some some sound that was made at the beginning of um the BBC broadcast turns out that it has an official name. I think it's called the pips where it's like uh, the Pips. Beep, beep beep. Isn't that a duop band? <laughs> the pips. Yeah. That'd be a good band name. Actually. You're right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've since decided against that, but at least I know that I didn't dream it and that it's real. So,
1: so unless, unless your
0: research was done in a dream, that's true too. Yeah. You can never yeah. be
1: sure you can never, that's know. right. That's what we know. What we know is we can't
0: ever be sure. <laughs> I'm sure our listeners will will fact check us. All I think you're making all, all zero of them. Oh yeah, you're making some assumptions there. Maybe maybe you're not. You corrected it.
1: Right. I think, you know, I think it would be a reasonable goal to have one listener. <laughs> I mean, I think that could be attainable. Right. You know, there's something for everyone, and maybe we are that something for that one.
0: I like the idea of having a third person in this conversation, kind of like a silent partner in a business. Yeah. Um, It's just we know that person's name, you know, Larry, and we can talk to Larry, but Larry can't talk back.
1: Uh, Yeah, I like the idea of a third person that is
0: either unable,
1: unwilling to speak. Which one is it? Is it... Incapable of speech. Yeah. Uh, possibly. Actually, you know what? It's probably more likely they can speak just fine and we
0: just can't hear them. <laughs> right. Well, that's probably what it is. They just have a very high latency in this asynchronous conversation, right? They have to wait for our packets to arrive. Then they say what they want to say and then we just get it much later.
1: Yeah. Let's just say we get it. That's right. Whatever is being yelled at, whatever audio device, we're picking that right up. Yeah. I like that. I think that's right. So, yeah, but I I don't think we should get ahead of ourselves. Just we target one. Right. Once once we get that one, uh, we try to keep them. Yeah.
0: Just sometime in the next year. Just that's the goal. Yeah. Right? I do feel like,
1: One of the prerequisites
0: to get that one would be publishing. Yes, I think you're right. Right. Someone would have, one would expect these files to be available publicly in order to listen to the podcast. Um, Right. I don't think that's unreasonable. I think that's fair. Yeah. I wonder if that would be a first. Probably not, but if we just recorded our podcast hundreds of episodes and never, never released them. Um, uh, there, are, there are probably thousands of, of, uh, underground podcasts.
1: They're so underground, <laughs> it's just probably just one person sort of rambling perhaps. Yeah. Maybe without a mic, hmm. just mumbling somewhere in the corner. I mean, that's basically what
0: I was doing before you called. <laughs> yeah. I just thought, I mean, I knew you were doing this already. We should record it. Right.
1: Just get, you know, just, I'm just telling my thoughts to the room and the room, you know, the room seems to acknowledge them, Mm -hmm. but it's nice. Yeah. It's nice to change a pace for you to, uh, for you to maybe respond or something. Mm. So feel free to do that.
0: Well, what's on your mind this week? This week. Um,
1: what's on my mind? I was thinking about thinking about types. Right. uh And I don't, you know, I think there's, it's a big subject, obviously. So there's, there's this idea of types.
0: So types in a programming language, I guess, to
1: be more, oh, slightly more precise. Not
0: like typesetting or um, typing typewriters. Yeah. Not like a
1: font. Hmm. If I'm honest, I really do not understand the obsession with fonts that a lot of people have. I see, I think I'm in the minority on this.
0: I, I think it's a fairly recent phenomenon. I mean, you got to think before 1900, there was just one font, right? It was just the handwriting font. Um, it, there wasn't a selection of fonts. And then I guess whenever typewriters came along, maybe I have no idea what I'm talking about. Maybe I, I think uh, they did have fonts uh, when the printing press was introduced. But b-
1: yeah, before I mean, that. But you, those, font, those fonts were literally like what, like lead squares or whatever that you had to place in the, you know, you had to typeset, right? You had to literally put them in the, in the compartment or whatever. Is- That's actually interesting. I, this is a, this is a, a, a bit of trivia yeah. uh, that I believe to be true, which is, you know, the only kind of trivia I truck in. And that is that uppercase versus lowercase letters the the case refers to the place where they used to keep the letters. Mm-hmm. The uppercase letters were just up above the case above the lowercase letters and that's how they got called that's why they're called that
0: there you go yeah there there you go larry our one listener yeah now you're smarter um it, well is there a relationship between type typing and like types in a programming language uh, hmm how did the word type get used in kind of these higher level languages or get introduced, I guess, Do you know, well, I think it's, uh, it does
1: go back to this notion of category theory, mm-hmm. which I'm probably not very equipped to talk about. They talk about types. Um, and so there's this, there's this idea of like a category, an object in a category is it's like a type, and I think they do use that term in some way, again, not qualified. Um, but it got started, it was starting to be used in the early programming languages to really represent something different than that, to represent a bit pattern. You know, like the type of this this number, you know, you think about like a, a floating point number is a particular way to look at a, uh, some bits, so 32 bits or whatever. And, you know, you just have to, you have to, if you, to, in order to read the bits properly and know what to do with them, you have to understand how they're laid out in the machine. And then an integer would be the same, maybe big Indian, little Indian situations you're in. (laughs) Um, And uh, when you get to more complex types. something like a struct where you have you know multiple things right next to each other or an array potentially in a similar kind of way you have to know you know what the size and shape of all these things are in order to do something with them Mm -hmm. but i don't think that that's what most of us mean it's not really what i mean by types anymore when i when i think about types Um, tell me what you mean i mean i think that's true you know it's not it's, it's relevant, but I am I guess I don't really think about the low level as much as all that, like that you need to have the types in order to figure out like how to read this memory. Mm-hmm. Um, I did an assembly language class many, many decades ago, or maybe not many decades ago, many years ago, <laughs> uh, and more than one decade ago. Um, and at that point I thought about those because that was sort of what we were doing, working at that low level. Um, but since then, uh, in my professional career, it's been more high level thinking about types and thinking about them and not really as categories in terms of category theory, which I don't understand, but just as, as kind of Aristotelian sort of categories, maybe. Um, so the way that you put something, uh, types give you a way to talk about a thing. You know, they give you... To give you a handle to hold on to to really understand what this thing is. Um, and maybe I like to think about types in sort of a platonic sense too. this idea that that there is uh, in a platonic form uh, the idea of platonic forms is that there is somewhere in some existence that we don't have access to there is a perfect circle you know it's just sitting out there somewhere. And so when we create a circle in, in in the real world, in the physical world, in the place where we live, uh, we're we're trying to kind of mimic that perfect circle. And that would be true of like the perfect chair, I think, in a platonic sense, like whatever that would be, which I have a hard time imagining. Mm-hmm. Well, Um, and maybe that, maybe there isn't a perfect chair, maybe there's a perfect recliner or maybe there's a perfect, uh, kitchen table chair or something. Maybe you have to get more precise, but when you do that, you are kind of playing with types even still when you think about that. And I I don't think it's a perfect analogy to talk about platonic forms versus, uh, you know, types, Mm -hmm. um, because in the, in that platonic world, the type is perfect and the implementation or the sort of instantiation of that type is imperfect. Uh, and I, I don't know that that really applies necessarily to something like classes and objects. because you create a class and you create an object from it and you can be pretty certain that 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 uh, object adheres to the type. But it's still, I don't know, its it's something fun for me. That's this how I get my kicks is thinking about platonic forms once in a while.
0: Yeah, I think I, for types, enjoy thinking about the kind of lower level parts and just figuring out how it's laid out. Um, that's sort of what attracts me to programming is those lower level bits. But as a practical matter, <clears throat> um yeah, types give us that ability to kind of talk and think in human terms. I think that was if I understand the history correctly, that, that was sort of like the origin of, of uh, object-oriented programming with like Simula. I think they were working in nuclear reactors, and they needed uh, ways to talk about those interactions um, as they were building this program to simulate uh, nuclear physics. So, I don't know. It has a long history, and... and of being kind of representative terminology to talk about things in, in more human terms when you're actually at the computer. But I don't know if we do that as much as an exercise, like when we're working in teams, I think we, we often just use types as a a way to hold data and we don't spend a lot of time thinking about how, the types can be more represented in human normal terms, not so abstract.
1: Well I think I think that's probably true, particularly as a as a system ages, you know, you there seems to be this inclination to not create new types. And maybe maybe this is not exactly what you mean, but you, you reuse existing classes, even though they're not perfect, a lot of times. Right. You know, you, you use the fact that our languages, or most of our languages, allow things to be null. You know, we use that quite a bit to say, like, well, in this case, we don't really care about the user's address. The user has a name and an email address, and we need that information, but we don't care about their physical address. And you know, I think if you're modeling the system correctly, frankly, that you would create another class that didn't have the address if you didn't care about it.
0: Well, I think there's this human tendency to assume whoever came before us knew what they were doing and had had modeled it correctly. And so we don't want to touch things that we don't necessarily understand or think that, you know, we we might get wrong and they had it right. There's a little bit of resistance there, anyway.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's part of it—the um, resistance to to adding new things. Um, but you know, some of it is just now I have all these new things, and I think I need to now I have to keep all this in my head as well. Mm. And I think I think you're right, particularly somebody who is maybe a more junior developer who's coming behind more senior person is it would be a real natural thing for them to think that the senior person did it correctly mm-hmm. and and it's a little bit of a more subtle notion maybe to think well maybe they did do it correctly for the situation that they were in but now we're adding a new feature we're doing something different so like maybe it isn't that doesn't mean it's correct now mm-hmm. like the, but it all comes down to this idea that there's only one representation of a user in the system, or there's not. <clears throat> maybe this. Well, I think that's it. Like, we're, there's only one representation of a user in the system, or or some few number of representations of a user in the system, or whatever you're talking about, you know. And that th- you have this data model that maps to your table, and you only have the one table for users, so you should only have one class. Right. And really it's a, you know, thinking about the way something is used adds a little bit of abstraction or abstract thought to it, but it also adds a little subtlety. I guess those are kind of similar. So you think about um, what, not not exactly like, what is this? This is a user, but what is this in relationship to the system, to the work that's being done now? So in a way, you're not really right. If you make a user class that is just an email address and a name, that's kind of, it's kind of a user, kind of a projection of a user, but it's also sort of reflective of the relationship between the full user object, maybe, and what we're doing. And maybe this, uh, um, email that we're sending to this email processor. See, so you think about types, and, and that's one of the things I really, uh, I think that we don't do as well, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but a lot of people do this probably well, but I don't think that we do it as well as we could, is um, modeling relationships. Or modeling relationships and modeling processes, I guess, both of those things. So, we, we're good at modeling nouns, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Nouns have but, attributes, which are naturally you know, variables or or pieces of data. We understand how to do that pretty well. That's kind of basic programming. That's where you start with. So it feels like everyone has that skill, kind of gets it correct, uh, correct enough. Yeah, I agree. I don't think we model relationships very well. Um, and, And seeing those connections between entities in a system is often kind of difficult when you're dealing, when you're programming in just text.
1: Hmm. When seeing those relationships in this particular flow, in this particular like portion of the app. Mm-hmm. Right. Not not seeing the app broadly. And and you know, I'm not somebody with a lot of experience in microservices, but I hear people talk about microservices as a way to solve this problem to a certain degree. It's it, it's okay to see your objects as these global truths in the whole system. If your application is just one function, mm-hmm. right? That, that seems fair. So maybe that's sort of a way to work around it. I don't, I don't know.
0: I don't know. I think you moved the problem to a different level now you have a bunch of things that interact and have relationships and and those in a way are kind of types themselves or entities and they have relationships and then you have another type of modeling problem just not in the the file or or language that you might be coding in it's still yeah that's
1: true the same problem and we don't have 60 years of experience creating tools to manage that problem right which was you know i don't want to be a Microservices denier, but uh, we haven't gotten to that episode yet. I see, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll actually study it and understand what I'm talking about before I deny it. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. I, I guess it's interesting you talk about the uh, the, the fundamental physical attributes or the low level stuff. I know that's something you get into. I definitely get into the other end. The more of the abstraction um the the actual computer part itself is just sort of kind of irritating to me it takes time to do anything some the fan keeps kicking on all the time (laughs) um you know i it i I guess i'm not i like i've always wanted to live in some sort of more abstract space and this physical reality is always getting in my way I am glad that there are some people who are
0: the opposite end because otherwise I would have like no job, basically. So of all the languages that you have um, used, even a little bit, which do you think has the best kind of type system for you? The the flexibility that you think you need uh, to kind of work in these abstract ideas?
1: That's, that's an interesting question um, because I think it's probably true that the best type systems are in, in languages that I haven't really used very much. Mm. Um, just I haven't had professional call to, and I've maybe played with them. So I think you know a lot of people would call out something like Haskell as a, a programming language that does types well. Um, and I just you know it does it well. I agree that it, it seems to uh, because basically. Until you get the types right, it won't compile and it just yells at you. And when you get them right, then everything's fine and it's beautiful. So in the sense that like this notion of type-driven development where you can get, when, once you get the types correct, the program just
0: works. It seems pretty ma- magical to me. They say like, if it compiles, it works. Is that, is that Haskell?
1: I don't know that the haskell people would make such a bold claim but i think people like myself who are like haskell you know looking at looking in the window like i'm out in the cold and i'm looking into the nice warm uh front room uh i I think maybe i would say that but i guess i would i would imagine that the haskell people would encourage you to do a little bit further digging to make sure it worked
0: (laughs) yeah you don't even need to run the program you just know that it works um, have you, have you experimented or played with TypeScript, uh, recently in the last couple of years?
1: Um, not enough. I've done it. I've gone back when we used to, uh, leave the house and go to conferences. I did see a really interesting, uh, TypeScript talk at Strange Loop a couple of years ago. Hmm. So that was powerful and it really kind of opened my eyes to the, the structural type system yeah. of TypeScript.
0: So I don't think they have the same or are aiming for the same um, thing that Haskell is, but they do have a very nice type system that continues to evolve and, and kind of push the boundaries of what I've seen and used. So as you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of TypeScript. Um and I just, I just love working in that, that type system, that flexibility. And you always have that escape hatch of, you know, the any type. But if you want to invest the time, you can create some, some really, truly beautiful type systems. And it, it just uh, it doesn't get in the way. I don't know how to explain it. But I feel like I can create all these nice types and it doesn't feel burdensome. that's kind of usually what I'm looking for in a type system is something that's going to help put constraints around my ideas but not take a phd to create
1: yeah I think that's really interesting um and it's it's a bit more pragmatic probably that's the thing just again from afar the thing that interests me about typescript is it seems to be a very pragmatic language that's created by people who are just brilliant and really into type theory
0: yeah i think sometimes they go a little far i feel like if you track their releases um i you know they're doing things now that i feel like are very specific for library authors uh, which is good which is needed um, the original releases of TypeScript up until like version three, I feel like were very much about application writers and people who were trying to push the boundaries of what what a web application, um, you know, the the size of a web application. Um, but now I think they are are getting a little bit towards the very geeky, very um, intense type system stuff that, that only a certain subset of people would care about. But I think it's all with an eye of... Letting those application people do some some pretty cool stuff and build some big applications and, and know that they're going to work instead of having to deploy the application or run it and, and find those those errors. So, so much stuff is going towards the web these days that I feel like they're doing saints' work with TypeScript.
1: Hmm. When well, you're somebody who who come who came to TypeScript from. From either end, right? From a C sharp as a type program, uh, typed programming language, though not as interestingly typed as TypeScript, but a type programming language. And from the other end, from Java, uh, from the JavaScript side. So you sort of, I mean, if I, I think what you've kind of mentioned to me in the past is that sort of like found a happy medium. Is that fair?
0: I, uh yeah i guess i don't know if i would describe it as a medium so i'm never i've never been one of those people that hated javascript i just didn't write big javascript applications um, and i was fortunate enough to like find and discover a use for typescript kind of early on i think it's been i want to say eight years now um which is hard to believe but I never knew the pain of writing massive web applications in JavaScript. I only knew JavaScript really is like a, a way to add simple behavior or simple things, you know, for, for forms, but never entire applications. Um,
1: I, well, that actually is interesting because I was thinking about that when you said that the types are not burdensome for you to write. Mm-hmm. So from the perspective of somebody who's been doing JavaScript, they might They might see that differently. They might think, well, writing them at all is burdensome.
0: Yeah, that's true. yeah, there, there's a whole other set of developers that I guess I just don't talk to. Uh, I'd love to to hear their perspective um, of, of seeing Typescript as a burden because for me, it's like I can see how they would say it's a burden because you are writing more things and doing more planning and um, you know just more code. But at the same time, like, don't they see the the, the weight lifted off your shoulders of, of thinking, yeah, this is safe to do, or uh, this has caught a mistake before. Um, and also th- the IntelliSense and, and whatnot that you get from using TypeScript. I just, I see it as actually a time saver, even though you're probably writing more code.
1: I think the people I'm more interested in hearing from are People who have spent enough time in typed languages and for whom it just doesn't work, hmm. like They just—they are not just people who've never done it and therefore they think it's more code and they don't want to, right? Yeah, and that's fine if that's what they want, but that doesn't interest me. It's people who have made a an intelligent, informed decision to not use types. Hmm. I heard a podcast with what, DHH, yeah. the Ruby on Rails guy. Mm-hmm. And he was very adamant about like, he's, you know, does not like types. It doesn't work for his brain. And and he is somebody who's tried it, you know? So I'm like, well, there is a perspective there when somebody is actually able to be successful who doesn't like types and doesn't see the purpose. And And, and to be fair to him, he wasn't saying that no one should use them. He was just saying that he shouldn't use them, mm. you know? And Mm -hmm. I I find that interesting because I'm with you, I think, you know, having done some fairly sizable JavaScript apps, there, I mean, there's a lot of pain there. And it's not just something might be undefined or null or something like that, or it's, it's without the constraints, you, you have to be more careful, you know? You have to be intentional. Like, you know, you write, you know, everybody who's in any large JavaScript apps has seen, you know, a function that sometimes returns an object and, and sometimes returns
0: like true, mm-hmm. you know? Well, you can, you can make that a type <laughs> in TypeScript. I, that's what I love about the uh, languages that have union types or intersection types or, you know, complex types, so. I yeah, I think I think that actually that's really
1: interesting. So, if you found the situation where it made sense to either return an object or true, you can denote that. Yeah, and say like I found it. This is the one. I guess actually with TypeScript, you you don't even have to say it's not an object or a boolean. It's an object or true, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You can, you can exactly. specify that. Yeah. Yeah, that part is really nice, being specific or saying it can only return this set of strings instead of just a string type. Um, the, the the strings, the exact strings, become a type, which I think is um, is pretty nice. I'd like to see more languages. I'd like to see C sharp adopt that, but I don't think that I think we're beyond that now. It's too late to make that kind of change in C sharp.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know how that would work yeah
0: i don't see I mean, how it, it would almost in. be like an alternative type system or something right yeah i don't i think that would be the wrong move as we've talked about before like we got to let c sharp C sharp it can't be everything we just need a another language um and maybe it It just like f sharp you know it uh it works there's interoperability due to il so yeah, I don't think we should fit it in. I just, I do so much work in C-sharp that it would be nice if it was there. What about
1: what about TypeScript that targets IL? Or TypeScript for .NET?
0: Yeah, I can maybe see TypeScript for WebAssembly and, and some interoperability there. I don't know if the type system, I'd have to look at the... The standard and see if it could even could match because there are certain types that are missing from javascript that i don't know would would exactly work in that world but hmm. um i don't know that would feel very weird i don't know how comfortable i would be if i could create a project and say well this one's in typescript and we're gonna call some types from c sharp or something like that so
1: i don't know i mean i
0: would I
1: would think, you know, the event loop is pretty baked in, but maybe I'm wrong about that. That would seem, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is being kind of a weird mismatch between the two environments. Hmm. The single-threaded nature of it and the
0: event loop and all that.
1: But I don't know, maybe you could ignore that.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I I guess just, I, I like kind of sticking with one language This idea that multiple development teams could build one project or one application in different languages, not in a microservice model, but like, you know, you're building a client and it's composed of many projects and some of those are written in different languages. I feel like you only do that when you have to um, because maybe you have an older library that you need to call into some methods that you just don't want to rewrite, maybe some scientific stuff. I don't know. Is that a smart thing to do if you have the choice not to do it?
1: Yeah, you might. I mean, I'm with you in a single a single application, not a microservices world. Um, I don't know. I yeah. You you hear people talk about um, mm-hmm. mixing C sharp and F sharp sometimes. Mm-hmm. So maybe like the the core business logic is in F sharp. but You like put a mvc or web api wrapper in c sharp around it because it's a little bit more natural to do that in c sharp you know i guess if you're from the very beginning if you have some kind of case like that to be made maybe that'll work and you have a team that knows how to work in that space you know that that seems that's the biggest um concern i would have would be you know now you you're um requiring your dev team to have two more skills than would be strictly necessary.
0: I feel like if you've taken the time to to learn F-sharp, and I I recognize that F-sharp has some distinct advantages, although I feel like C-sharp is starting to close the gap there, but even there, I still think there's some cultural advantages in F-sharp, things that aren't necessarily required by the language, but that the community does that are better than the C-sharp uh, community, but if you've taken the time to learn F Sharp, why not just go all in on F Sharp? I feel like you've overcome the hurdle. Um, why not just write your entire application in F Sharp? If you're comfortable with the um, the frameworks that are available, I guess would be the stipulation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you could probably do that pretty easily. There's <clears throat> maybe this isn't as true as it used to be, but i think doing object-oriented programming in f-sharp is a little bit awkward and so just something like building some controllers like uh MVC controllers or asp.net controllers and f-sharp it's is just a little awkward because you have to make classes and stuff and mm. i don't know it's not the end of the world and I th- i'm guessing if i'm remembering correctly you know if you have your models you you would have to make them like CLI mutable in F-sharp. You have to mark them as something that even though you don't want to make, you want to make your cli- your types immutable, mm-hmm. so once they're created, you can't change them. Um, the way model binding works, you would have to say, well, some other some other language or some other part of the system. So ASP.NET itself would be able to create this and then mutate them. It's just little things like that. I don't think that's huge. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if F sharp is. I mean, I used to, I got into F sharp for a little while. I'm not sure it's right for me anymore. Um, frankly, the thing that started to turn me off about F sharp was the fascination that the community seemed to have with operator overloading. Hmm.
0: Yeah, you've There's always about been against that. Yeah, it just
1: turns me off.
0: Yeah, I find that fascinating because I, I have the opposite of opinion. I, I love. The idea of it, although I, I never use it anymore, um, but the idea of operating, operator overloading, I really like in a language for some reason.
1: I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed to the language having that facility necessarily, because um, there's probably a few times you want to do that. I mean, I think the, the, the canonical example is I have like a point in two-dimensional space or three-dimensional space or something. I want to add them together or do some kind of math on those uh, because those are kind of a, a sort of a kind of number, let's say. They're mathy at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just I feel like being able to, you know, overload operators and also create new operators basically. I mean, it's just a way to obfuscate what you're doing. You know, the, the art, which is interesting, at least it's interesting to me to think that or, or because the reason that I hear that they want to overload operators, that people want to over, overload operators is to make it easier to read,
0: mm. you know. And you have the opposite. And
1: it way. makes it more terse and maybe there's a little bit less, you know, less fewer words and everything. But I think it's the opposite. I think it it, it makes it more difficult to read. And I've never been somebody who was able to sit down and like read mathematical notation. There's just, it's it's really um, difficult for me to, to make heads or tails of that stuff. I mean, I've had math classes long ago um, and I learned what I needed to learn at the time, you know. I could draw the integral symbol or something for at one point, I don't think I could anymore not correctly at least but yeah you, know, you learn these Greek letters and you you know you have to you have to make sense of it and it just feels like just unnecessary cognitive load or cognitive burden I had to put on myself to make sense of the math I, I I think the the ideas are interesting but the way you note them are hard at least to me and yeah. and that seems to I mean I, I, I don't know if I'm correct at this but I blame that sort of mathematical thinking and the propundency of math people in the f-sharp world for the reason that they like to have those overloaded operators
0: that's interesting i'm just thinking about why i like that um and I, and I also have the opposite take on the the kind of mathematical notation i think that that is i i like that i prefer that and i'm trying to figure out why that is and i'm just sitting here thinking like well the more i have to move my eyes or more i have to move my head i I don't like that. That that affects readability for me. But if I'm able to stare at something um, in one place, I'm able to do more uh, precise thinking about that idea. Um, and so, a, a dense mathematical notation, you know, might have a lot of ideas and a lot of thinking and a lot of pieces to it that you have to do. But for some reason, that's easier for me to understand than a long chain of of symbols with kind of a lot of verbosity. So. I don't know. I guess it is just a, a difference in 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 your take on that stuff. I have to kind of think about that a little bit more. If have caused me to examine my myself here. I know that there's you know there's a there's
1: an argument a, a good argument that says you do have to learn those things. That's part of the process. You know, just like you have to learn jargon in order to make sense of of what some technical person is talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, maybe you know. Maybe I should just spend more time digging in uh, and learning that stuff and, and I would be okay with it. Then I would be like, yeah, you just gotta go through this. And then suddenly, like you said, you can just stare at a small chunk and like a really densely written code or a formula or something and it'll all come clear without having to move around. And maybe that's true of math, and maybe that's true in, in like a language like F-sharp that does a lot of operator overloading. But I think, you know, one difference might be that every, if every library is doing its own thing and it's adding additional operators, and it's all, it's not like when, you know, once you learn mathematical notation, you're kind of done, mm-hmm. right? That, that was all pretty well set in stone some time ago. But if every other, if every library is doing its own thing, you know, it has its own notation. Then you have to learn that anew every time you want to pick up something. Yeah, but I think part of it is also I just I like words. It's really that simple. I think <laughs> words are words are good, and and I'm I'm much more comfortable, for example, with this with jargon words than I am with these symbols. My brain can interpret those and has a place to put them. But if you just like stick a dollar sign between two identifiers, I, I don't know what's going on.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I get you. I think that you have to understand the, the context. And if you're not in the context, it makes no sense. And you know, I think there's things that are right for, for new and junior programmers. And I think there's things that are right for advanced. And then maybe there's a stage beyond that where you go back again and you're like, you know what? Words were really the right thing to do there. And maybe it keeps on going in a loop perhaps, but.
1: Well, it's one of the things that it reminds me at least of one of the things I tell my students. And this is, you know, like everything I tell my students is something I stole from someone. But since I don't remember who I stole things from, I can pretend yeah, to have invented a, it. Original. Yeah. Um, the idea that regular expressions, we talk about some, every, so often, every so often a student will say, tell me about regular expressions. And I always say, there, there are three levels of regular expression, three stages, right? The first stage is you, you don't know regular expressions and therefore you fear them. You see them and, you know, they are line noise. There's a bunch of special characters there. And what do they mean? And it doesn't make any sense. And it's you know super dense there, right? And so you just avoid them. You don't understand them, you don't want to, you just it make you feel dumb, you avoid them. And the second stage is you do understand regular expressions and so you use them everywhere, right? So you're just like, oh, all I need here is a regular, is a simple regular expression that then I, grows and grows and grows until it's five lines long. And so you just, you do nothing but regular expressions. Like how much of this code can I cram into a regular expression? And then the, the third stage is you understand regular expressions and then you hardly ever use them. Mm-hmm. Cause you're like, you know, this could be done with a regular expression, but it could also be done by calling this string method. And that makes more sense to anybody coming after me it's just, it's just simpler. And you just, you so it's like you, what you said earlier about how you come full circle, right? Right. When you're, um before you reach enlightenment, the mountain is just the mountain. While you're looking for enlightenment, the mountain becomes this magnificent awe-inspiring thing. And then after you reach enlightenment, the mountain is just the mountain again. At least
0: that's what I heard. Yeah, yeah. I stole that too. My my problem is that I I know exactly who I stole these things from. It was you, so I have to give you credit for it. Unfortunately, I I remember. So
1: well, I'll get. You can. um, I don't know what it means to steal something from somebody who stole it. It's like some sort of (laughs) second generation stealing.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting what you said uh, about you know, you, you think about the readability and as is often said, you know, the person who has to read, this is really just the future me, right. You're thinking about yourself a little bit, maybe, maybe other people um, that have to understand this. And you know that this is in fact not the most readable version of this code. And part of it is like, well, you're experienced, you're, you're more aware of other methods that could accomplish this and, and sometimes the regex is the right tool for the job um, or or one of the right tools i guess you know so i think it's just an awareness of of possibilities and then also a certain compassion that that only comes with time i guess
1: well, yeah i think that's exactly right and it there's another level of that is once once you get to that level three, stage three regular expressions, you've, they're no longer shiny and new. They're just another tool in your toolbox. Mm-hmm. So that stage two is like excitement. It's driven by this like excitement that you finally understood this cryptic thing, you know? Yeah,
0: that's true. But
1: after, after you get past that, you're like, oh, well, right. Yeah, you're right. There's definitely a place to use regular expressions. If you have to parse a regular grammar, you should use a regular expression. Um, yeah. But that, you know, at least a lot of the time. If, if you just want
0: to know if a string starts with some word, you shouldn't use a regular expression. <laughs> I've seen that quite a bit. Oh, it always makes me laugh. Um, well, I think that's a good place for us to to wrap things up, actually. Um, leave, leave the listener with a little bit of feedback on uh, or thought on enlightenment on the mountain. Uh, I guess I just want to tell people that they can reach out to us at the ref count podcast on Twitter and ref count podcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to send an email. So that's, that's how we wrap up. I, I think that's how we wrap up. I don't know. We have never wrapped up before. Yeah. I didn't want just just stopped. Yeah. Last time we did stop. Maybe that's how we
1: do it. We just stop. What, do we stop after you say those things
0: that you just said? No, I think this is still, we're still on, but now. This is still a- oh. Yeah, now we stop, you know, right now.